0: Well, good morning. Can you hear me okay? All right, that's good. Sometimes I don't talk loud enough. Just kidding. I, I always never have that problem. So, <clears throat> Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are um, in our series, Great Lives from God's Word. As you all know, this is a series that goes uh, all the way until uh, mid-July and so we're going to be in it for a little while longer we still have a few lives ahead that we're going to be talking about Uh, i think joseph is one of them paul is one of them um somebody else and somebody uh, esther anyway esther is who we're starting in on today and so esther is uh an, an amazing account in scripture anybody in here ever read through the book of esther Right? Okay, a few, few of you, yeah? <clears throat> and uh, so, uh, it's a unique book in Scripture. Um, it's one of two books in the Bible actually named after a woman, if you didn't know that. Uh, what's the other one? Ruth. Ruth is the other one, right? So, we have, uh, we have Esther and Ruth. Uh, Ruth is kind of a, the story of, a uh, um, you know... A family on the fringes trying to survive. This is the other side of the coin where we see somebody who's, uh, you know, Esther's kind of thrown into this, uh, into the royal family, so to speak, right? And so, uh, in some ways, we can tend to look at the book of Esther um, as almost a bit of a fairy tale, right? You ever kind of think about it like that in in such a way? Um, You know, I don't know, if you have kids or if you, you've uh, you know had young kids at some point, uh, we read books and stories uh, to our kids that start out like this, right? Once upon a time, right? Once upon a time. Kids love stories like that, don't they? You know, they love stories like that. Heck, I mean, we're not going to lie. Adults kind of love those stories too, right? <laughs> we're, we're okay with that. We enjoy uh, a good once upon a time story or a good, uh, I don't know, I'll say romantic comedy even. Anybody in here, right, like a romantic rec- rom-coms? Anybody in here? Four people, five, six, okay, most of the guys aren't raising, the few of us are, raised, are man enough to raise our hands to say we enjoy those, right? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, those are, those are good. And that's kind of how Esther reads as well. Anybody have a Specific fairy tale, once upon a time uh, story that they like. Anybody, you know, Disney story or something like that, right? Remember back when Disney made really good movies and stuff like that. Remember those days, and so that was good stuff. And and uh, so anyway, I kind of grew up watching The Little Mermaid. You know, and uh, and Kim and I watched uh, what's the one, uh, the the guy in the castle. He turned what's what's Beauty and the Beast, right? Beauty and the Beast, right? That's a good one. Anybody like Beauty and the Beast? Come on now, come on! Break out of your shells this morning, all right? E- Thank you. Esther is kind of like Esther is kind of like that. Thank you. I need, I'll take all the prayers I can get. Esther is very dramatic. It's very dramatic in a lot of ways, right? All of the elements in it, or uh, uh, all the elements to a great storyline, are here. And, uh, and again, not just a story, but an actual account as well. And frankly, archaeology proves that it's not just a story, but it's the reality uh, of, you know, an account and real people in history. Um, as we date the book of Esther, the king, see, his Greek name is Xerxes, right? And so some Bibles have it translated as King Xerxes, but his Persian name is Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, right? So go ahead and say that if you want, Ahasuerus, right? That's, that's his Persian name, and my Bible has it as such. So when I read this, I'm going to have to say that name over and over. And so, boy, w- pray for me, right? So Xerxes is his Greek name, and, uh, and so we date the book as to his reign as king of the Persian empire. Uh Ahasuerus reigned from 485 B.C. to 464 B.C. in Persian. Remember, B.C. goes backwards, right? It goes down. And so he reigned from that time uh, and from the capital city of Susa, which is modern-day Iran, right? In fact, if you go back and you read about the Persian Empire and you uh, see the the Vastness of their territory it's big it's big they in fact it covered um, areas of modern day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, right parts of that uh, parts of Sudan, Libya, right It was a very big empire, vast empire and so in terms of biblical history, this account belongs after the time of the babylonian exile because persia was the next world power after babylon right after the babylonians fell to persia they were the world power and so they had become the dominant ruling power and uh, and so in 538 bc king cyrus ordered a decree allowing jews to go back to Jerusalem and some jewish exiles at that point had returned uh to jerusalem right um but uh not everybody did like not all returned at that time and uh, in fact over the years uh there was just a small portion of the jews that returned to jerusalem from this exile and of course it grew from there but many did stay behind and so um So the first wave of people returning returned uh, to rebuild the temple. Uh, And if you read about that, it's in the Old Testament under Zerubbabel, right? Zerubbabel is an excellent name. Uh, And so the temple was ultimately finished in 515 B.C. So some Jews had returned in this first return, but not the second and third return, which would happen later, right? That would happen under who? Remember, the second return would be Ezra, and the third return would be Nehemiah, right? And, uh, Nehemiah, and uh, and so anyway, they would re- they would uh, return then, uh, but they would not come back. Those would not take place until after the account of the book of Esther takes place. All right. So as far as a timeline or historically, that's where this fits in. So at the book of uh, Esther, uh, we're just prior to those returns by about 20 years or so, okay, to Nehemiah and Ezra and those returns. We're about 20 years before that. Uh, Some of the Jews had returned to Jerusalem. Some were still living in Persia in the capital city of Susa, which was the case with Esther and Mordecai, all right? And that is what who, the, you know, who we see in here as the main people initially. Uh, these were Jews living in Persia or present day, modern day Iran. So, there are two books in the Bible that never once mention the name of God. The name, right, God's name is never mentioned in them. Does it, so, this is one of them. Does anybody know what the other one is? Anybody? song of Solomon, or song of songs, right? And we're not going to read from that one today, okay? So, our current book, Esther, God's name is never mentioned in the whole book. And uh, now, just because the book doesn't mention God's name, does that mean that he's not at work? Well, of course not, right? Of course not. So, he's, he, he is present. He's very present in the situation, Uh, and uh, even though his name is not necessarily mentioned, right? So God has a mind and a will that we don't always understand completely or even know the totality of every situation. Has any of you ever experienced that in your life, that you don't understand everything that God is doing? Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too, right? But here's the thing. We know that he is good, and in him there is no darkness at all, whatsoever. In fact, 1 John 1 5 tells us that, that he is good, and he's light, and in him there is no darkness. And so we know that he's working all things out uh, for his people's good, for those who are called according to his purposes, which is according to Romans 8:28, Paul writes, and so we don't always though see that in the moment right he's working things out for the good of those who love god and are called according to his purposes but we don't always see that and in fact this is the case with esther and mordecai like god was working but they didn't understand how it was all going to work out and this is true of us today right the depths of God's mind, we cannot fully plumb, we cannot fully understand, right? We see that in Romans eleven thirty three. His judgments and His ways are unsearchable, unfathomable to us and our simple minds. And let me just say, you know, no matter how smart the smartest person in the room is here today, and let me just say... I'm never the smartest person in the room. But let me just say, even the smartest person in the room here, God's ways are still unsearchable and unfathomable to that person because we all have simple minds. That's just the way it is. And so Romans eleven thirty four, Paul asks a rhetorical question or he writes it and he asks it, so to speak. But he says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who can become his counselor? Well, the answer to that is... No one, right? Nobody can. Nobody is God's counselor. Let me tell you what I think you should do, God, right? Nobody gets to do that. And so his ways are unsearchable often and uh, are, uh, you know, greater than our minds conceive. Now, he also has a will, right? God has a will, and it's a sovereign will, and he has a providential plan that is in place so when we come to the book of Esther here, we may not see the name of God spoken in the text, but we see His fingerprints on everything that works out. And that's true of this book. That's true of what we see in it. Divine providence isn't something we necessarily talk a lot about specifically these days, but we would do well to consider His divine providence uh, over our lives and over the workings of our lives, right? Right? So much in the book of Esther is divine, uh, the divine providential plan of God, working things out in a, in a way that is uh, for a grander plan to be worked out, right? And so, how many times, if you consider this, how many times uh, throughout history uh, are the, have the Jews been under attack? It's interesting to me how many times the Jews have been under attack throughout history, and yet... Providentially, God has worked it out to save them from extermination every single time, right? And I have my reasons, my eschatology uh, lands in a place where I have reasons why I believe that God's not done with, uh, with the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Otherwise, Romans 9 through 11 is pretty hard to explain, but, you know, uh, so that's where I land on this stuff, but I believe there's coming a time where, uh, where the fullness of the Gentiles will come into the family and that the Jewish people will be turned, uh, their eyes will be opened and they will be saved, and so that time is coming. Um, thank God that He made the way for Gentiles to be grafted in, though, right? Amen. We are Gentiles, if you didn't know that. If you're Jewish in here, that's, you're different. But there's, there, most of us in here are probably Gentile people. And uh, we are grafted into the family. But I believe, again, Israel is still important for him. And even though today they are largely an unbelieving nation. But I don't believe that will be, uh, that will be true for eternity, for, forever, right? So... All that to say, God's sovereign providence has been working throughout the years, even if we haven't realized it. The British preacher and commentator, Matthew Henry, you probably read some of his commentaries if you are into that thing, uh, he lived from 1662 to 1714, and he said this about the book of Esther, though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is directing many uh, minute events for the bringing about of His people's deliverance, and I believe that to be true. Um, You know, which brings, I guess, another piece to this is that God's providential plan involves people being people of action, okay? (laughs) And so, when the Jewish people went into exile which we read about in the book of Jeremiah, we see that in Jeremiah 29, uh, uh, Jeremiah as the prophet of God, he speaks God's word to the people, right? Everybody in here know Jeremiah 29, 11, probably, right? You probably know that. I know the plans I have for you, yeah. So, so Jeremiah speaks to them, and, and in Jeremiah 29, he tells them, seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in it, Uh, welfare, you will find, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And that's Jeremiah 29, 7. So for those Jews who were still living in Persia, they would have known this was the word of God when they were entered into exile under Babylon, right? They would have still known that. And frankly, I believe they would still be acting on that which is exactly what we see a man named Mordecai do in the book of Esther. Now, you're probably thinking, is he ever going to read the Bible? Yes, I'm going to read the Bible, and it's going to happen right now, okay? So, Esther chapter 1, we see a giant party being held, okay? Uh, And uh, King uh, Ahasuerus uh, or Xerxes. Either is fine, but he's throwing a giant party, okay? So, Esther 1, 1 through 9, we're going to read, okay? So, uh, again, there's Bibles on the chairs if you want to pick one up and follow along in it, uh, or if you have your own or your phone. uh, Here we go, Esther 1, 1 through 9. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Right, The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of pomp of his greatness, for many days a hundred and eighty days and when these days were completed the king gave for all the people present in susa the citadel both great and small a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace there were white cotton curtains and violet hanging hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble uh, mother of pearl and precious stones wow that's quite the place huh drinks were served in golden vessels vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict for uh, there is no compulsion for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And then also, Queen Vashti uh, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Ah. So there was this giant party going on, right? 180 days was this party man six months he was partying with his officials right all his top officials and all these things uh and and so here he was for that long and then after that's done he decides to have another seven day party for everybody in the kingdom from the greatest to the smallest right anybody in the whole kingdom is invited to come to that one and so he invites them all and then queen vashti she held a, a feast for the ladies in another place and so it was just party central right in in the in the capital city for these 6 months and 7 weeks right and so what we see here is giant pride on display right huge pride on display right a display of power and wealth and majesty all Pointing to Ahasuerus as the man, right? He's incredible, right? That's essentially what he's putting all this on for. Uh, reminiscent of another king uh, of Babylon that was walking on the rooftop one day and looked out over everything. And remember, he said, Ah, yes, my kingdom, everything that is mine, right? He, he was very prideful about it and, and he paid a price for that. But, you know, this kind of, this very, you get the same feel for Ahasuerus here, right? That he's very prideful about all that's under his control, all that that he has, and he puts all this stuff on. So we see that in the second half of chapter one then, after the party had subsided, right, and everything was kind of cooled down a little bit, uh, we see that in the second half then of chapter one, uh, on the seventh day of this party, it says that the heart of the king was merry with wine, right? Verse 10, On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Translation, he was drunk as a skunk, okay? That bottom line, translation, he was super drunk, right? And so here he was, his heart was merry with wine. He got so drunk that he, you know, I did a lot of reading about this, and so there's, there's, uh, it's interesting, you know, as to why he sent for Queen Vashti to come Uh, but you know there's some people who believe that all of the uh, the leaders and head people of these provinces were there and they were debating maybe who was the who had the the prettiest uh, women that were present you know in that in those parties and stuff and and so whatever the reason was king Ahasuerus says all right bring in the queen bring in queen Vashti and and uh, bring her in and I want, I'm going to show her off to everybody else. She's going to be the center of the attention. And so he sends for the queen. And frankly, um, you, know, this, you, pro, you don't learn this uh, you know, in kids' ministry, but the reality of this is he probably sent for her to come in wearing only her crown so that everybody else could look upon her, okay? That's the bottom line. He, he was drunk as a skunk, and he's like, bring in the queen. And so uh, most likely, he just wanted her to come in with only her crown on and nothing else. Well, she said no. She refused to come in there. Good on her, right? She refused to come in there and said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, the king's unit came and said, you know, she said no, she's not going to come. And so he was embarrassed, mad. Angry, and so the rest of that chapter talks about uh, about this decree that was set in place that he did away with uh, Queen Vashti. Sent her away; she could, she was never to come before the king uh, ever again. Right, and so she sent away. And then, frankly, everybody was was uh, worried. Hey, if the queen won't listen to the king, then maybe all the rest of the women in this city are gonna. Not, not do what their husbands say. And so they came up with this plan uh, to put it in writing, you know, that Queen Vashti was, was banished, you know, get rid of her. She's not going to come before. So anyway, uh, so then we see that that's what happens and she's never to come and step foot in front of the king again. Well, chapter two begins with the words, after these things. Okay, right? After these things. Chapter two, right? So, after what things exactly is the question, right? Like, after what things? And there's a lot that's not written down. In fact, uh, we know that between chapters one and two, four years time pass, okay? So, you go and you can read more about that on your own. But four years time passes, right? Chapter two begins with after these things. and, uh, And so, has anybody in here ever seen the movie Three Hundred? It's a brutal, bloody movie. I'm not saying you should go watch it, but you know, it's kind of a guy's movie. But uh, but if you've never seen it, Three Hundred um, is a movie about Spartan soldiers, okay, uh, and Sparta, right? And the Spartish soldiers uh, or Spartan soldiers fighting against the great Persian Empire, right? Have you nobody ever seen that just a few of you like okay so a few of you have all right <clears throat> again i'm not saying go watch the movie but but you can if you want all right so um so this movie kind of takes place and it shows this story of the spartan soldiers fighting against the persian empire and the persian army in a place called thermopylae okay Thermopylae was a small piece of land that divided northern Greece from central Greece, and it was this piece of land that, depending upon where you go read about it, could be anywhere from 20 yards wide to 200 yards wide, which is where this great battle took place. All right, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's what took place here where, with 300 Spartan soldiers, with uh, countless Persian soldiers that came against them to do battle in this place okay? And frankly if you go read about it, what you'll find out is that the Persian army suffered pretty heavy losses. Uh, they I mean depending upon again who you read, they had anywhere from hundred to 300,000 soldiers sent to this uh, area but the Spartan soldiers came here and decided they were going to choose this place because 300 of them, could at least defend this narrow strip of, of land, right? And so that's where the battle took place. And they held them off for three days. And then after three days, they were all killed, okay? And so, in fact, the Persian, I read a little bit about this, and the Persian army lost like 20,000 soldiers, where, and, and the Spartan uh, soldiers all died, 300 of them there. Um, and so, uh, I was reading a little bit about Ahasuerus and how the, uh, what he did to make it look better for him and his soldiers. He buried all 300 of the, uh, of the Spartan soldiers so that his people wouldn't know that only 300 men held them up for three days. And then he also buried the majority of his own people and left uh, a few out there so that it would look like their losses weren't as bad as they were. So this was So like, Xerxes was a, uh, a prideful, prideful guy. He wanted to look good as the ruler of Persia. And it was a giant empire again. So again, this battle is contained and happens and takes place between chapters 1 and 2 within that four-year period, all right? So again, approximately four years had passed. We know this from Esther 2.15, which tells us that he was now in his seventh year of reign, whereas in chapter 1, he was in his third year of reign. All right, so are you still with me? Everybody with me here? All right. Okay, I know history gets me excited sometimes, but might not get you excited, so I'm sorry about that if it doesn't. All right, in chapter 2, we see that the king, once his anger had subsided, regrets that he had to some extent, regrets what he had done, right? We see that he's, he's kind of thinking, okay, I'm regretting this a little bit. And his entourage of people around him decides to find him a young, beautiful virgin to become the new queen, Right? And so they sent out and they gathered uh, beautiful uh, young virgins from all over the provinces. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't... I hear this all the time. People talk about how it was like a beauty contest and a beauty pageant. That's not really it. I mean, that's, that's the cleaned up version of it. You know, again, if you're going to teach it in kids' ministry, that's what you say. But it really wasn't like that. They went around and gathered them and brought them uh, whether the people wanted to come or not. Okay, so this was... This was maybe a little darker than we uh, think about it sometimes, all right? So they bring them in and, uh, and they, gather, they gather them from around and bring them in, right? Present to the king. And, um, and so it came about that Esther was one of the women to be presented to the king. And she is described as a beautiful woman, lovely to look at in chapter 2, verse 7. That's what it reads, right? Ultimately, we see that she finds the fa- she finds favor with the eunuch overseeing the group of women that is has gathered there, um, and uh, and she finds favor because she followed his instruction. Right now, eunuchs uh, were men who had been castrated, uh, so that they they were able to be around the group of women and and bring them around without any uh, problems coming up. Right, and so. That's just the way that it worked in this day. So when you read about a eunuch in the Bible, there you go. It's darker than you probably think. I'm sorry. Today's kind of dark, isn't it, man? I got I, I got to work on this, man. Anyway, um, where are we here? Okay, so uh, so Esther two fifteen reads that Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Right? Esther two seventeen we read that the king loved Esther more than all the women right? And she won grace and favor in his sight, uh, so that he, King Ahasuerus, set the crown on her head and made her queen, right? All of this part of a bigger divine plan, right, that was being worked out. So, Mordecai enters into the scene now, right, into this story here, and uh, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, a man of God who had raised her uh, from a child because her parents had died, it tells us. He uncovers a plot um, from two of the king's eunuchs, and their names were Bigthan and Teresh, right? And so they had this plot at the gate to kill the king. Well, Mordecai overhears uh, at the gate. He overhears this plot and, uh, and so he goes and he tells Esther about it, and Esther goes and tells the king all about it on behalf of Mordecai, right? Well, the end of, of chapter 2 tells us that both men were found guilty, and they were hanged, and, uh, and so it does, does away with both of those. So this plot was uncovered, and it was thwarted. Ahasuerus lives, Okay. In chapter 3, we see uh, a man named Haman enter into the story. And Haman was an Agagite, all right? Now, that's what it tells us in uh, chapter 3, right? That he was an Agagite. Now, this is interesting (laughs) because uh, it means that he was of the line of King Agag, all right? And And you can read about him. He was an Amalekite king. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 15, okay? Now, were the Amalekites friends of the Jewish people and King Saul? Anybody? No, they weren't, right? No, they were enemies. And so, in fact, when King Saul and the Israelites defeated the Amalekites, what happens uh, is they were supposed to destroy the Amalekites completely, but Saul didn't destroy. He actually kept King Agag around, And then Samuel came and found out that he was still keeping him around. And so Samuel had to step in and then kill King Agag, all right? So another layer to this story, to this account, right? So Esther 3, 1 through 5 reads this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha. Uh, And advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king uh, had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And then they spoke to him day after day and would not listen to them they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He was filled with fury. Haman was working for the king. and in, in fact, he was positioned above all of the other officials in the kingdom. And so we see that as uh, all who entered the gate Uh, were supposed to bow down to Haman as they entered in. Now, there's a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, and he wrote that this was a common practice in the day uh, in Persian etiquette. This is what would have happened. But Mordecai refused to do this. Um, Chapter 3, verse 2, But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, this ticked him off big time, right? And so he built hatred towards Mordecai. And frankly, all the Jews, as we're going to see uh, in, the coming, uh, in the next part of this uh, account, we're going to see that he was filled with hatred for Mordecai and the Jews. In fact, as we read, he was filled with fury, it tells us, right? So next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about about Esther being there for such a time as this. Have you ever wondered about that, like life, you know, uh, why am I here? We were talking about that just this morning, you know, how, you know, my kids have told, told us before, man, we, we wish we would have grown up in your guys' time, you know, we wish we, wish we, we were, you know, we, we lived through the 80s or something, because I always talk about the 80s, how they're so great, you know, <laughs> and so, and so they're like, ah, we wish we would have lived in those days and stuff, and, and frankly, you know, there's others who have said that, too. I've heard it quite frankly, oh, man, I don't, you know, I wish we, I wasn't part of my, uh, you know, of my generation, and but I think we have to be careful about that, right? We have to be careful about saying those things because it's no accident that God has placed us in a history for such a time as this, right? And it's no accident that all of us are here in this time, in this place, in history. And God wants to use us for His purposes, even if we don't always see them, right? And so be careful when you say things like that, or I say sometimes I, I say things like that and Uh, But God wants to use us in the here and the now, even though they're different than maybe times past. Uh, And so what can we do and how will He use us now, right? So a few things uh, as we end here. Uh, The actions of ungodly men and women do not thwart the plans of God, right? They just don't. The actions of ungodly men and women don't throw God off His plan, right? Right? They don't thwart His plans in the long run, and no failure will totally frustrate or stop the plan of God. There isn't any failure that can stop God's plan from moving forward, and God will use even ugly circumstances for His purposes and plan to be fulfilled. What we're reading about in Esther and finding out is that it's not as uh, clean and washed as we learned when we were kids. It's, there's some uh, realities to it that are hard to handle. They're hard to read and hard to look at. And yet, even in ugly circumstances and times in history, God will fulfill His purposes and His plan. And we can trust Him no matter what. And I guess the question is: Do we trust him? No matter what, even when things look ugly around us, you know. Um, in the hymn, it's well. It is well with my soul, right? An old hymn, eighteen seventy-three. It was written, and uh, it was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford. All right. And, uh, and so some of you know his story, and I'm not going to go into that completely, but, you know, his kids all died and, and in a sinking of a ship, right? And his wife lived, and, and so um, there was great trouble in their lives, obviously, in 1871, I believe that happened. But when he wrote this, uh, this hymn, the words to verse 1 say, When peace like a river attendeth my way, right? Well, it's easy to trust God when peace like a river attendeth my way, right? Like, that's easy. Sure, everything's great. Everything's lining up. I got great peace. You know, we're, like we were just talking about before service, you know, does everything ever completely line up? Well, at times in life, things go pretty good, and you're like, all right, you know. Well, let me just tell you, it's easy to trust God when peace like a river attendeth my soul. But line, the second line to that also says, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Right? When sorrows like sea billows roll. Well, it's a little bit harder to trust God when sorrows roll like sea billows, right? And that is life, because there will be moments that, are, that we find great peace, and then there will be moments that we find deep sorrow. We've all probably experienced that, and if you haven't, just live a little longer, and it'll happen, right? But the reality of it is, in great peace or in deep sorrow, do we trust in God's grand, overarching, providential plan? Mm-hmm. Father, thank you that you are uh, trustworthy, and um, and that we can lean heavily on you, and uh, and lean not on our own understanding, but trust in you and your ways and your understanding, because it is so much greater and superior than our own. And so, Lord, at times when we think we know better, Lord, humble our hearts and our minds before you, that we would, would be people who would come before you, trusting you, trusting your way. And submitting to your way, God, instead of trying to make our own way uh, and make something happen that maybe it's not the right time for, or it's not the right uh, place to do it, Lord. But um, we just want to pray that we would be people who lean on you, trust you. God is always uh, today. If there's anybody here that's far from you, there, uh, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, God. Draw them and uh, and you know cause change in their hearts and minds lord to submit to you and to see the uh, the sacrifice that jesus has made for us all and the way that is made that we can walk in if we will surrender and turn from our sin and from uh you know trying to do it on our own that way is made and so lord if there's anybody who's never surrendered to the sacrifice of Jesus and to your will, God, today, would you draw them to yourself? God, we always want to pray this, and we pray that each of us that's on this journey, Lord, that you have us on, that you would um, make us more and more um, like Jesus. and. God, it's just uh, it's, uh, it's always a continuous journey that we're on. And so uh, we want to become more and more like you, Lord. As long as we have breath, we have that ability. And so today, God, would that be true? We love you and we are thankful and grateful for your presence here with us. God, each and every time we're together, we know that you're here. And, uh, and so we thank you. We pray these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everyone, it's Pastor Clint. I want to thank you for joining us today for this podcast, and I hope it was beneficial for you. Our vision at Family Life Church is simple, to create a safe and authentic environment for people to encounter Jesus. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please don't hesitate to send us an email at admin at myflc.org or connect with us via social media on Facebook or Instagram at Family Life Church Newberg. We'd enjoy hearing from you. Again, thank you for listening today and God bless you as you pursue Him.